Glad to have you with us in this hour. And in this hour, can we draw connections between the struggles faced by enslaved women in the antebellum era and the ongoing fight for equality black women are yet waging today? Moreover, what are the dangers of today's jurisprudence reproducing a variety, a litany of slavery era ideas? We'll talk about it right now for the hour. With Cornell University professor and author, Dr. Tamika Y. Nunley. Professor Nunley, good to have you on this program. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's my great delight to have you. Um, There's a lot here uh, to try to unpack in this hour. (laughs) And and I literally was up early this morning trying to figure out where to commence this conversation. And I think uh, I want to begin here and we'll we'll let it do what it do uh, as we move uh, Mm -hmm. through the hour. But I, before I get into into your text, um, the demands of justice, which we'll talk about again as we move through this hour, um, I was fascinated mm-hmm. by a piece you wrote recently in the Washington Post. The title of that piece is "The Danger of Today's Jurisprudence Reproducing Slavery Era Ideas." Give me a second here, mm-hmm. just to um, uh, just to uh, to opine, and then I'll, I'll throw some questions at you. So, some years ago. Um, before Donald Trump was elected president, I was on one of the Sunday morning programs, um, uh, ABC This Week, as I recall, with George Stephanopoulos. Um, and mm-hmm. I made a comment that just sent people into <laughs> into <laughs> into a fit. Uh, and, mm-hmm. the, and the comment I made was that that I could see in the not too distant future if this Supreme Court continued in the way that it was going. And at the time, it wasn't even six to three the way it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I posited then that we may look up one day and see efforts to make black folk three fifths of a person once again. And mm-hmm. and, and I wasn't at all being um, I wasn't kidding. I wasn't joking. I was being very serious because I was concerned even then about the way uh, our Judas, our Jewish prudence, the way our 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 our, our system our judicial mm-hmm. system was starting to advance notions that I thought were really, really dangerous. Uh, and I could see then we were on a slippery slope. This was before they wiped out affirmative action. This was before all of these book bans started. This was before the right. attack on critical race theory. I'm not calling myself a savant. I'm not calling myself prophetic. What I'm saying is I could read even then that we were headed in a dangerous direction. Here you come now in 2023. Um, basically echoing what I said then, that there is a danger Mm -hmm. that we are witnessing in real time about uh, our jurisprudence reproducing slavery era ideas. And I wonder if we can begin our conversation by you just unpacking that notion, take it any way you want to take it. We've got an hour, take your time, but just unpack why you feel as I feel and felt um, some, some years ago. Absolutely. Um, So this case that I was talking about in the Washington Post um, was a case involving reproductive technologies and the development of embryos using in vitro fertilization. And in order to resolve a dispute between a husband and wife in Virginia, a Virginia judge um, ruled using um, slave laws that um, basically legitimize using human, human, human people, right, and embryos um, as property, um, that they could be designated and used as property legally. And so he's using actually slave codes mm-hmm. um, from uh, the 19th century um, in order uh, to make this 
um, decision and advance this preliminary opinion. And um, what's apparent that, and not always apparent to everybody else, is that most slave statutes throughout the slave states have not been uh, repealed. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of judges um, in these states where slavery existed can actually repurpose and use those slave laws in order to advance certain legal logics uh, for cases that come up today in the docket. And that is problematic, um, particularly as we see the sort of constant unraveling of our rights, mm -hmm. um, as we see these um, judicial um, cases being decided upon in ways that really reverse a lot of the gains of the civil rights and the women's rights movements. Um, and so we find ourselves in a really um, in dangerous situation, to your point. And, you know, I do agree, right, that if we aren't vigilant, um, and if we're not really paying attention, um, what we are, what we will miss is a really sort of long-standing effort to continue to chip away at the rights of Black folks. Yeah. So let me let me pick up on the point you made just now, which is that there are states all across this country uh, that have not, as yet in 2023, repealed any number of slave statutes. So these mm -hmm. statutes are laws that are still on the books in states, literally from California to the Carolinas. I ain't telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I know. I've done the research on this. Mm -hmm. So from California to the Carolinas, there again, there are any number of states, a plethora of states, who still have these mm -hmm. slave statutes on the books as a matter of law. They've not been repealed. I am not naive in asking this. Why do you think that is? Uh, just an oversight on somebody's part? I think not. <laughs> you tell me. Well, I think that there's always been a longstanding resistance to changing the laws that have been passed in this country, right? Unless it sort of um, advances a sort of a transformative uh, legal effort, we oftentimes tend to defer back to the status quo. And, and that's what we've seen, not only with these um, slave statutes, but also just even with our Supreme Court today, right? Um, uh, just this res longstanding resistance that's been mounted by the conservative movement to continue to chip away um, at what little gains we've been able to hold on to um, from different grassroots movements. Yeah. How concerned then should we be? Um, how serious is the danger uh, of, of, of judges today, jurisprudence today, reproducing slavery era ideas uh, and uh, slavery era consequences and repercussions, if I can put it that way? Absolutely. I mean, we should be very concerned. And um, Michigan State University, um, their College of Law has been tracking all the ways in which different uh, courts have been using and drawing upon uh, slave statutes as good law, as good law to be applied to current um, legal issues. And if we don't begin to sort of address this, um, this is going to be a part of our future. It's going to be imprinted in how we um, litigate and how we um, uh, try to advance certain arguments that move beyond these slave statutes. Mm -hmm. um, so should we, we should absolutely be concerned. And I think you were right um, uh, to put that thought out there um, to get us to really think about um, how our legal system is structured and the scaffolding involved um, in order to continue to bring us back to the past. Mm -hmm. I love your use of the word scaffolding. Uh, that, that's exactly what we're what we're experiencing and witnessing even as we speak. Let me ask you, you're a professor, so you, you teach this stuff every day. Um, in talking about these slave statutes, these laws that are still on the books in states all across this country that have not yet been repealed, whose responsibility, um, and I suspect it, the answer may change depending on what state you're talking about, maybe not, you tell me, but how would we, how would, how would we in 23, uh, 2023, get these laws off the books? Is this a legislature issue? Is this a, like, how, how would that work? 
Yeah, I think that um, being attentive not only to how we're voting um, uh, sort of on a broader level uh, throughout this country, right? We put so much um, effort and uh, focus on electoral politics as it pertains to who's going to be in Senate and who's going to be in Congress. But even in our state legislatures, this is where we're seeing a lot of the battle unfolding, uh, particularly around book bans, around CRT, right? And so being attentive to those local elections and who we're electing to these state legislatures um, and to um, also the state Supreme Courts are going to be really important in that effort um, to dismantle all of these sort of legal codes that had accumulated over time. But dismantling these legal codes would be the responsibility of the legislature in that state, in said state? Yes. Yeah, it would be the legislature of that state, depending on the state. Um, Every state is going to be different, Mm -hmm. um, particularly um, as we think about the South versus the North. Um, But really, um, this is sort of work. uh, This is why I use the term scaffolding, right? Because there are layers upon layers Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in years and centuries of lawmaking um, that have occurred. And this is why people are resistant to changing it, right? Because they reify um, this sort of centuries of lawmaking and American jurisprudence. This American legal tradition is something that is revered. And so as a result, people are are less inclined to try to change it. Um, but we have to really put pressure um, on our lawmakers, um, their judges, the legislators, um, the politicians, um, to really begin to get them to grapple with the ethical implications of continuing to use slave law. Yep. This is not an irrational fear. You see why when I read her piece in the Washington Post, it got my attention because, again, there are so many states in this country that still have these uh, slave statutes, these state slave laws, as it were, on the books. Uh, And there are judges who are increasingly uh, making decisions, as she detailed in this piece, uh, making decisions based on slave era statutes, slave era laws. When you combine that reality with the the funny style way that this uh, present U.S. Supreme Court is moving to constrict rights, um, to reduce rights, not expand rights. I've said many times on this program, our country is at its best when we're expanding rights, not shrinking rights. But when you combine uh, these decisions that judges in Virginia, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia and beyond are making these days based on a variety of slave statutes and slave laws, you combine that with what the Supreme Court is doing, you see it's a it's a it's a toxic mix uh, and something that we ought to take seriously. Sadly, uh, as you heard uh, um, uh, P- uh, Professor Nunley say a moment ago, it's the legislature in these states who'd be responsible for repealing these laws. And that ain't going to happen no time soon, particularly in these red states. But I'm raising this flag and I'm waving it high so everybody can see it. This is a serious issue uh, that we need to spend more time sort of dissecting. Uh, and we'll do that when we come forward. With our guest in this hour, Dr. Tamika Nunley, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Tamika Nunley is our guest in this hour, and uh, we are talking about um, a society where injustices persist and whether or not we can draw connections between the struggles faced by enslaved black women back in the day in the antebellum era and the ongoing fight that women are still waging for equality, black women today. Uh, Before I get into your book, there's one other thing I want to ask you about um, with regard to scaffolding, which we were discussing earlier. Uh, Maybe that's the word of the day, scaffolding, um, that you were talking about. And I want to go directly to your Washington Post uh, piece. Uh, again, for those who want to find this piece and read it for yourself, 
Washington Post. It's called The Danger of Today's Jurisprudence Reproducing Slavery-Era Ideas. Let me read one paragraph that I want you to uh, sort of uh, expound upon, if you will, uh, Professor Nunley, and then we'll, we'll move from there. Um, I quote, mm-hmm. from, I quote from, your, from, your, from your column, from your piece. Slave laws protected the rights of enslavers to own and sell black people which involved exerting control over reproduction. For example, uh, a 1662 law in Virginia made slavery inheritable through enslaved women. At the time, English common law determined most cases involving inheritance on the basis of the paternity of the child. But new laws were created in the colonies, and these slave laws ensured that enslavers maintained legal access to the reproductive capacities of enslaved women. That's a lot to process, Professor Nunn. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but let's talk about it, right? Um, so when we think about um, inheritance um, and the tradition of English common law, uh, right, most children inherit, you know, this. a lot has changed today, but mm-hmm. most children in the past inherited their father's name. Mm-hmm. Um, they oftentimes, inheritance is passed through the father. Well, in Virginia, they changed the law um, when they had the colony here um, to ensure that um, that inheritance of slavery went through the wounds of enslaved women. And so what this meant is that if an enslaved man um, actually had a child with a white woman, that child was entitled to freedom. But if an enslaved woman were to bear um, that child, that child would be um, be enslaved for life, right? And so codifying that one law would have implications for generations of Black people and African-descended people throughout this nation, right? And so even as um, the United States in 1808 closes um, itself from the transatlantic slave trade, the population um, produces, naturally reproduces, and I say naturally in quotation marks, right, Mm -hmm. because we have this law, but right, the slaveholders are allowed um, to manipulate the reproductive labor of enslaved women um, in order to grow the enslaved population in the United States and therefore the African-American community. Mm. So link for me, um, these struggles um, vis-a-vis jurisprudence then uh, and -hmm. the ongoing fight that black women are engaging for equality today. Right. And so right now we are dealing currently with a black maternal health crisis Mm -hmm. um, that has gotten a lot of attention with Congress and Senate recently. um, And also um, as a result of a lot of black women um, activists who have been organizing to address um, this maternal health crisis. Um, And that oftentimes is linked right uh, to black women's relationship uh, to political institutions, to medical institutions, to the law. Right. um, That has been um, in process over time and for generations. Um, And so we're still dealing with right the um, reduction of our reproductive rights. Um, we are also dealing with um, a confrontation of obstetrical violence in the um, in the hospitals, um, and so this this journey of sort of dealing with Black women's reproductive lives is ongoing. It's something that has constantly had to be um, uh, be addressed, and it has its origins. Um, in a law like 1662 Partis Sequitur Ventrum, right, that um, that slavery is inherited through the wombs of enslaved women. Let me read to you, speaking of reading, I read a piece from your column. Let me jump to another story that I want to read from um, that literally is in the news today. Um, you are not just a brilliant professor, but you are prescient and prophetic, given what I'm about to read to you right now. This is in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, 
And here's the headline. Cedar sinai faces federal civil rights investigation over treatment of black mothers. Talk about a link and talk about the timing of the link. Mm -hmm. Cedar sinai Mm -hmm. is the number one hospital in California, known around the world. Mm -hmm. Number one hospital in California, the number two hospital in the nation. If you were in L.A. right now, you'd see billboards everywhere. I saw one yesterday. Uh, where Cedar sinai is bragging that they are the number one hospital in California. Indeed, they are. They're the number two hospital in the nation, and they are facing a federal civil rights investigation right now over the treatment of black mothers. Let me read the first two paragraphs. Cedar sinai Medical Center is facing a federal civil rights investigation over how the Los Angeles hospital treats black women who give birth there. An official with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services confirmed the investigation comes after allegations of racism and discrimination emerged in the years after the death of Kira Dixon Johnson. Johnson went to Cedars in April 2016 to deliver her second son by cesarean section, but died hours after uh, died hours later after hemorrhaging blood. Uh, her husband, Charles Johnson IV, filed a lawsuit against the hospital over her death. In fact, two lawsuits. Both of those lawsuits, Caesar, uh, Cedar uh, sinai settled. He filed two lawsuits. Cedars uh, settled both of those lawsuits. But now um, uh, I'm sure he is uh, uh, relieved that the federal government now has gotten involved uh, in looking at civil rights uh, violations of black mothers at Cedar sinai Medical Center. How's that for a link to what you were just talking about, uh, Professor Nunley? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, Mr. Johnson has been such a champion uh, for black women's maternal health. Um, I remember um, uh, reading his uh, testimony before the Committee on Oversight and Reform uh, for, for Congress. Um, and he's been such a champion uh, to advocate for black women's maternal health and telling his wife's story, which is tra- which is a tragedy, right? And and should not be happening um, in our hospital systems. But there's something broken. Um, there's something broken in how uh, medical professionals, um, providers are treating um, black women, how the law treats black women's reproductive lives. Um, that has to be addressed. It's unacceptable uh, for a country with our resources and with our professed values. Again, not naive in asking this question, but why in 2023 are we even seeing stories like this where black mothers, black women are being treated differently, maltreated to the point of death in some of the leading hospitals in this country? Yeah, I mean, a lot of our doctors um, uh, who don't have proximity to the black experience are not um, trained um, to see black women, to see black women as human, right? Many of them have been socialized their whole lives not to even see us, right? Um, to deem black women's bodies as invisible. And so therefore, they're not going to see our pain. They're not going to see our medical conditions. They're not going to see when we are actually in need um, of help. And that has um, a sort of more to do with this nation and sort of where we are and, and how our values are reflected and how people are educated in the medical um, education system, right? Um, but also in the laws, right? Um, in the prisons, black women are being chained um, to their beds as they are delivering children as we speak, um, right, um, today. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do um, to begin to grapple with why black women are experiencing um, these types of birthing experiences and also some tragedies. Yeah. Let me go straightway then into your book, The Demands of Justice. 
enslaved women, capital crime and clemency in early Virginia. Um, that's the focus of, uh, of your research. Um, and let me just ask you a broad question and we'll build from there. Uh, tell me um, what you learned. Uh, there's a whole book, obviously, that you've written about it. Uh, but but top line for me, what you learned in your research about, uh, again, uh, the way these enslaved women um, were, were, were handled or not, as it were, back in the day. Yeah, I'll tell you what actually drove me to to write this book. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote this book during the pandemic. I wrote this when we were um, protesting, when we were professing that Black Lives Matter. And I just remember um, being in Cleveland, being at a protest and trying to figure out why are we all out here? We are all out here um, with no guarantee that anybody's going to listen. Right. But we're out here because we're hoping um, to expand the scope and the reach of justice. Um, to be accessible, not just to the few, but to everybody, right? Um, we're hoping for a more democratic um, idea, a concept of justice. And how long have we been doing this? And that's when I began to sort of tap into my research as a historian of slavery. And I, be I began to think about what do the resistive sort of actions of enslaved women tell us about what they thought about justice? Something that they experienced, something about what they endured, brought them to these actions, um, and this was their articulation of what was right and what was wrong, um, even though the law said that what they did by killing their masters, right, by attempting to murder them or to poison them was wrong. Um, but what they were saying was that there's some other ideas about what's right and wrong, and that's what they're responding to. Mm. And what, broadly speaking, were they trying to articulate then? They were trying to articulate that you could not do what you wanted with me, mm -hmm. right, with my person, mm -hmm. with my body, right? And so a lot of what brought these women um, to try to attempt to um, to kill their um, enslavers, um, the children of their enslavers, um, and even to kill their own children um, was a response oftentimes to the kind of cruelty and brutality that they experienced, um, the kind of violence that had been inflicted upon their bodies, um, which brought them right to a point of desperation to say this, I can no longer tolerate this. I'd rather be executed. I'd rather be subject to whatever the justice system is going to do to me than to continue to live through this reality. Mm. Your latter comment uh, made me think almost immediately of the brilliant Toni Morrison and her work, Beloved. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And when we come forward after news traffic in sports, I want to come right to that. Um, this notion yes. that these women uh, were so determined um, to fight against this white supremacy uh, that many of them would mm -hmm. kill their own babies. Uh, again, uh, draws a straight line uh, to to the brilliant uh, Toni Morrison's work. We'll talk about that when we come forward. You heard a reference uh, being at a Black Lives Matter protest in Cleveland. Uh, as you heard earlier in this program today, we are celebrating this week the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. That anniversary is on the 13th of this week and then later this weekend, a big celebration here in Los Angeles uh, on the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, she, uh, she is, Dr. Tamika Nunley, a historian. So I certainly want to get her take on uh, BLM 10 years in. A great deal more to talk about when we come forward with Dr. Tamika Nunley on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you with us in case you've just tuned in. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Tamika Nunley. Um, she is an award-winning historian, associate professor of history at Cornell University. Uh, has a book out called The Demands of Justice, Enslaved Women, Capital Crime, and Clemency in Early Virginia. We're talking in this hour uh, about the connections that can, in fact, be drawn, need, in fact, be drawn between the struggles and uh, struggles faced by enslaved black women in the antebellum era and the ongoing fight for 
black women's equality today. In case you've just tuned in, we were talking moments ago about a breaking uh, news story uh, relative to Cedar sinai Hospital here in Southern California, in L.A., the number one hospital in California, number two hospital in the nation. They are now the subject of a federal civil rights investigation over the maltreatment of black mothers, uh, one or more who've died at uh, Cedar sinai um, So this uh, this uh, maltreatment of black mothers at Cedars uh, here in Los Angeles is now the subject, again, of a federal investigation. Uh, and uh, that weaves quite nicely into, tragically, but nicely into um, our conversation in this hour about black women then, black women now, and how the struggle continues. Um, you, you posited something uh, before that break, Professor Nundy, that, as I mentioned, took me straight to Toni Morrison. Uh, I'll let you make the connection. Uh, you know where I'm going. So uh, you go ahead and leave us there. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so I have a whole chapter in the book devoted to infanticide mm-hmm. and um, enslaved women who stood accused of killing their children. Um, and it absolutely invokes um, Toni Morrison's treatment of Margaret Garner in uh, Beloved, um, this idea that they would rather um, commit their children to another future, to an afterlife, um, that is beyond this world rather than have them subject and, um, and, and, uh, and suffer under this system of chattel slavery and all that, um, came with that, right? And, and so these women in this book in particular are, um, a lot of different kinds of iterations of that story, um, that happen in Virginia, um, women who, um, go to take def- desperate measures in order um, to kill their children, but in their eyes also to um, protect them um, from what awaits them uh, during slavery. And this becomes also particularly acute uh, for women who have little girls mm-hmm. um, because they know um, that their enslaver is going to have access to their bodies in ways um, that force them into adulthood um, uh, even sooner than their white peers would be. Yep. This is a difficult question, but I'm going to ask you because you're a professor and you can handle it. Um, <laughs> when, <laughs> we, we, when, when you spend uh, part of your book writing an entire chapter about infanticide, when we think about beloved, again, Toni Morrison's brilliant work, the film directed by uh, Jonathan Demme, um, who won the Academy Award for Silence of the Lambs. I knew Jonathan Demme well, a good friend of mine. I God rest his soul. But Demme was an amazing filmmaker. Um, mm-hmm. But when you think about the film, you think about the book, you think about your book, about that chapter on infanticide, how, how do you, here's my question, and it's hard to get out, how, how, do, how do we, give, give me a way in for us to have a conversation about what we think about that, which is different than asking you specifically what you think about it. But but give me a frame, that's what I'm looking for, give me a frame for how we have a conversation about infanticide and decide what we think of, what we make of these women back then who would kill their own babies. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think, you know, you begin to have that conversation by asking what was slavery? Mm -hmm. What was slavery in America? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we casually allow slavery to roll off of our tongues, particularly when we're talking about American history and politics, um, particularly when we're referring back to um, the founding generation, the founding fathers, right? Um, Slavery rolls off of our tongues in this really casual way. But when we really begin to stop and think and ponder 
what was slavery? What was its impact? What was the everyday of slavery? That's when we can begin our entry point into how mm-hmm. an enslaved mother arrives at the decision uh, to kill her child, right? Um, you can't start there, mm-hmm. right? Because it feels just sort of abrupt. It feels um, over the top. But when you begin to understand just how over the top slavery itself was and the everyday experiences of the enslaved and children, right? Um, that's when you begin to understand um, why these women might arrive at the difficult decision that they arrive at. It feels unfathomable to us right now, um, but when we really begin to understand the cruelty um, that um, slavery allowed for, the level of brutality that our nation's laws allowed for um, when it comes to the lives of Black people, um, we begin to sort of see the bigger picture, right, of how a Margaret Garner comes to be, how Toni Morrison begins to write a beloved. You begin to see sort of um, lift the veil, so to speak, the cover off of our past, the kinds of uh, aspects of our past that we like to shy away from. Yeah, Um, because we're drawing linkages here between black women in the antebellum era and black women today in their ongoing fight for equality. Let me draw another linkage. Um, We're not talking about infanticide because that would land you in prison these days. So we're not talking about infanticide, Mm -hmm. but 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 there are a plethora of examples. Um, I'll yield to you in a moment here. There are any number of examples that I can think of and you can think of more, I'm sure, of the ways in which black women have to go in real time in late modernity to extreme lengths to protect and preserve their precious babies. Talk to me about that linkage even today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Alexander came out with this book about the generation of Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. And um, and in some ways, she, you know, she talks about how this idea of protecting your black child is almost magical thinking, right? Um, to do so is to really hope um, beyond beyond hope that you could that you actually can do this that that's possible in the United States, um, but something about the state of our society and the ways in which we see black bodies as disposable and the level of anti-black violence that we've witnessed tells us right that. Um, that this is really difficult to do, right? Um, uh, But yet Black women attempt to do it, right? Black uh, fathers also attempt, right, to protect their children. Um, And so it's an ongoing fight um, that I think is easy to take for granted when we look at the United States on its sort of face value and what we profess to say that we value um, versus what the reality really looks like uh, for people on the ground. Mm. You mentioned Trayvon Martin, uh, and I mentioned earlier that we are celebrating this week the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, The actual anniversary is July 13, but on July 15, this Saturday here in Los Angeles, all day, 12 to 6 p.m., in Lemert Park, adjacent Mm -hmm. to this studio, we are uh, just, again, celebrating uh, their work and witness over this last decade. There'll be performances and a children's village and giveaways and all kinds of uh, activities and vendors and speakers, including Cornell West, who takes the stage at about 4.30. So it's going to be a great day this mm. Saturday celebrating the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. When we come forward, since you referenced it in being at that uh, protest rally in Cleveland, because you are a, a brilliant historian, I want to get your take as a historian on the impact, um, the legacy ongoing of Black Lives Matter uh, in this country historically. We'll get that response from Dr. Tamika Nunley when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Professor Tamika Nunley mentioned Trayvon Martin moments ago. Um, I should mention that Trayvon's mother, Sabrina Fulton, 
will be with us this Saturday in Lemert Park on stage as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. So there'll be a lot of mothers uh, who've lost their precious babies and others who will join us this Saturday as we commemorate the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter all day this Saturday, 12 to 6 p.m. in Lemert Park. KBLA Talk 1580 is pleased to be the exclusive media partner of BLM for their 10th anniversary celebration here in Lemert Park this weekend. should be a great day. Uh, celebrating their work and witness this Saturday in Lemert Park. So again, Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon's mother, will be with us uh, this Saturday on stage. All that said, uh, Professor Nunley, uh, we've been talking about black women uh, and their precious babies and all that they had to endure in the antebellum era and all they're still enduring today. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask, um, you know, broadly speaking, your take as a historian on the the cultural, the the political, the social, the economic impact of Black Lives Matter ten years in. Absolutely, the impact has been enormous. Um, not only um, in addressing police brutality and also holding police accountable, um, but also in thinking about um, sort of broader cultural developments and helping people understand um, how Black people experience racism and discrimination on a day-to-day basis. And they've been incredible in their capacity to organize um, in a very decentralized context, right, to organize more broadly um, among the masses of Americans, but also people who are protesting all over the globe um, in response um, to these sort of egregious acts of anti-Black violence. But um, not only is their impact felt in that sort of activist context, um, and organizing context, but the the impact is felt in even just the kind of event that you're hosting, right, to commemorate, right? M- one of the tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement is to combat these acts of violence by creating space for Black joy, for Black innovation and imagination, right, um, and centering those things, right? And so even as we think about um, police brutality and also the Black maternal health crisis, um, we are also fighting uh, for Black joy, right, and for Black innovation and um, and for us to sort of come together around how we envision our future um, uh, moving forward. And that is also, right, a really important uh, outcome of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I love that you're having Cornell West there because, um, you know, one of the things that he's preached so much about in this this season of his career is love, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and how important love is. And as we think about sort of our, our collective existence as Black people um, in a very hateful and hostile world, um, and that in itself is is a radical um, a radical aim to organize around, right? Yeah, he's been my friend and brother for over thirty years now, and I'm certain to your point, um, he will utter this phrase this Saturday. You heard it here first. Um, it's almost difficult, uh, almost impossible, uh, to hear Cornell West uh, lecture anywhere without hearing this phrase at some point in his presentation. That justice is what love looks like in public. That's his line, yeah. and he utters it all the time. That justice is what love looks like in public, to your point about his invocation of the of the notion, uh, the power of love in most and many, if not all, of his presentations. So if you hear that phrase this Saturday, don't be surprised. Justice is what love looks like in public. It's worth it's worth interrogating. It's worth it's worth wrestling with. It's a powerful phrase. Uh, and I, I think it's true. You mentioned uh, decentralization a moment ago. When we come forward in our remaining moments with you, Professor Nunley, I, I want to ask you what you make of the success of BLM, given how decentralized it has been from its inception. We were talking uh, earlier today in our first hour uh, about Occupy Wall Street 
and how they didn't survive as long as BLM has. Uh, and they were also decentralized, as you'll recall. And so there's something, I think, pretty uh, magnanimous, something pretty amazing uh, about an organization that can survive for 10 years, have the kind of impact it's had over that decade, and be so decentralized in its structure. We'll talk about that and a, uh, a few other things when we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Tamika Nunley on KBLA Talk 15. Got about five minutes left with Dr. Tamika Nunley. I've enjoyed this conversation, been empowered by it uh, immensely, uh, and a few other things I want to cover in the time that we have left here. Um, I'll start with uh, what I left off with uh, before that break, and that is this notion of decentralization. You raised it. Um, we discussed it to some extent uh, in our first hour today. Uh, again, I offer as Exhibit A, Occupy Wall Street, also decentralized, but didn't quite make it 10 years, had an impact uh, in real time. Um, but the legacy of Black Lives Matter in this country, and as you mentioned earlier, globally is pretty uh, impossible to deny. And yet it is a decentralized organization. We don't often think of organizations decentralized having this kind of success a decade in. Your thoughts, Professor Nunley? Absolutely. I mean, in the summer of 2015, uh, Black Lives Matter organized a conference in Cleveland. And when we all went to that conference, what was incredible about it was people came from all over um, to this conference, people representing different organizations, people just representing themselves, wanting to know how they could do more. And then we all left that conference hoping to do our own kind of justice work, right? And I think so one of the things that Black Lives Matter does really well is to partner with people who are already doing that work on the ground at the local level, right? They're not um, trying to reinvent the wheel, right? Even though you have Black Lives Matter chat um, it's not quite um, the same as we see with other organizations, say, from the civil rights movement, right? Um, and so what we see is they are actually tapping into resources on the ground and figuring out ways to find so, uh, fund support for them, right? Because they know better, right, in Cleveland or in Ferguson, right, or in these local communities where people have been there for generations and know um, who their police are and know who their elected officials are and know what these neighborhoods are and tapping into them as a resource and saying, hey, how can we get some of this money that we're getting um, more publicly and broadly, you know, from this national attention to you? How can we get resources linked to you and how can we work collaboratively? And so I think that collaborative ethos, that collective ethos has been essential to sustaining the movement over time. Yep. Uh, in the time that I have left, let me circle back to your book, The Demands of Justice, um, which examines um the history of enslaved women's articulations of justice, the way they articulated justice then in the antebellum era. Um, what say you about the ways that black women today articulate their notions of justice in real time? I mean, we see it in even the mothers, right, that you're going to spotlight um, at the event this week, right, is um really centering the voices of um, the women who have been at the forefront of experiencing, right, the tragedy of injustice, the tragedy, right, of, of police brutality, um, when they are vocalizing um, what they've been through and what their experiences have been in this nation. Um, that's the kind of articulations of justice. They're saying that there's something broken in mm. our system. There's something insufficient, um, um, and they seek something more. They seek a more expansive and democratic democratic uh, reach of justice that has not yet been realized. Um, and we're living in times in which so many of uh, uh, our sort of own legal access uh, to justice is being foreclosed upon by the Supreme Court and by, you know, the conservative uh, movement 
um, right, to diminish the rights of, of black people and, and women, right? And so um, as a result, um, we are we are beginning to vocalize our dissent, right? Um, vocalize our dissent against what we see manifesting um, right before our very eyes. And so it begins with events like the one that you're having, right? That centering the voices of the people who have um, been at the forefront of this struggle, um, but have not yet received justice, right? In the 60 seconds I have left, uh, here's my exit question. Um, how would you define the impact that black women have had on notions of justice in this country from the antebellum period until now? Well, you know, oftentimes black feminists will tell you, you know, you can tell a lot about a nation by how it treats right, um, its lowest members of society, mm-hmm. right? And so until we began to really gauge sort of society's impact on these communities of people who have been on the margins and who have been neglected and who have been subject to this kind of violence, um, we really can't gain a pulse, um, right, on the identity of a nation and what their values really are and what the reach of those values look like until we look at the people um, who have the least access to them. Her name is Dr. Tamika Nunley. She's an associate professor of history at Cornell University and author of the book, The Demands of Justice, Enslaved Women, Capital Crime and Clemency in Early Virginia. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely, Professor Nunley. Thank you for your time and your insights. Good to have you on our program. Thank you for having me. My great delight. Hour three of Tavis Smiley, after news, traffic and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.